Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Creative Income 2024. Let's let's just put 2023 behind us. I don't know what it was like in, in your part of the world, uh, but for... For me in Los Angeles as a cinematographer, whew, that uh, tested some patience, let's just say. You know, it was interesting because I still, I shot five films in 2023, which is, by all metrics, pretty great. Uh, but because of interest rates going up um, at the end of last year, 2022, um, commercials just got slashed. I mean, when marketing budgets are the first to go when interest rates go up. So all of my commercial clients started doing more simpler animation things. Uh, They stopped doing bigger, higher-end commercials, and a lot of it's moved to social. In between the marketing budgets getting slashed and the strikes that were going on, you know, I I had a lot of higher-end films, bigger films that started calling even in March, and they were like, hey, we've got this impending strike. We're just going to push. We're going to push to 2024. So I'm hoping, I'm, I'm hoping and I'm feeling optimistic that 2024 is going to be an up year. Um, but since I've been in this industry for, you know, I've, I've been doing this for over, a little over 10 years now, I, I haven't experienced anything like this year. Um, so, but, uh, but, you know, we've got a podcast called Creative Income. So we've got to, I got to keep showing up. We got to figure out different ways and, and maybe there's some pivots involved, you know. So uh, I don't know what that looks like yet for me. Um, but stand by. Let's, uh, let's explore some, some things. I'll probably have some guests on that... Uh, um, I'll be looking for and digging for that advice specifically, and uh, we'll go from there. But uh, today we have Nick Matthews, um, who is a cinematographer who shot Saw, uh, the most recent Saw X, Saw 10, and um, really fascinating story how he got the job. This was his stu- first studio film. I think he went from his highest film being like 600 grand to this one, which was between anywhere between seven and 10 million. Uh, somewhere in that range. So it was, it was fascinating to hear how that, that process went um, and how he got the job. So let's uh, let's dive right in and we'll recap at the end. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. I know you're pretty busy. Uh, I don't know. Are you pretty busy? Are you working on anything right now? You know, I, it's been, the strikes have like, uh, they knocked me and everybody else out for a while. So yeah. I just started shooting commercials again and I actually mm-hmm. just got back from a job in Chicago that I was there last week and then I did Thanksgiving down in San Diego. So I, yeah, I'm not, I've got, as far as I know, I don't know what's next and I'm not sure what the next movie or the next project will be. It's just inevitably it feels like every two to three weeks uh, I'm like, what, what am I doing? But I guess I'm doing a color (laughs) session this week. um, So for a movie that we've uh, we're almost done coloring uh, we're mm-hmm. doing it down at company three and using co- Brian smaller. My first time working with him. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. Um, yeah. It's a really fun, visually stylish kind of film. So I'm excited to show people. So I guess the, the question I, I have or everybody else has is once you do a big studio film like saw, um, the phone doesn't stop ringing. Is that, has that not been the case for you? I, you know, I had a lot of feelings about some of that because I had similar sort of quandaries, I guess I would say. Mm. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the truth of it is the strikes meant that uh, no one was talking about mm. the next films. 
you know, when the movie came out. Yeah. And so I think there's not been that, you know, that just hasn't been the case. I did have a movie that like reached out the day that the, you know, that saw came out and, and received a bunch of good reviews, but mm-hmm. um, it just was not a script that connected with me at all. And I, um, I think I read 30 pages and was like, I don't, this just isn't for me. I usually after 10, you're like, well, I do like this. And if it's a friend, then it's a different game. Cause it's totally. like, I might be like, Hey, there's some of my thoughts. Like maybe you can change these things or whatever. But no, I mean, in general, like, yeah, like the movie came out and I think I wasn't sure what to expect or to feel about having a, you know, a studio franchise film come out and it did well financially. It, you know, crossed a hundred million dollars at the box office. It's yeah. the best reviewed movie of the franchise. Is it really? But, oh, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. But in my, um, in my personal life and in my career, it hasn't really looked any different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a DP and I, I don't have residuals and I don't have any sort of box office bonus. So, you know, I made my non-union rate on the movie and they were looking for a non-union DP for a reason. And, um, you oh, know, wow. so it's one, it's been an odd experience to sort of witness, like even having friends shoot viral marketing campaigns for this movie that I worked on and knowing the kind of rates I make on commercials versus on movies to just like watch like, Oh, like, you know what I mean? This, this thing that like, I'm like a very core part of the language and the visual style and the look of, um, is making a lot of other people money. Um, <laughs> you know, but it's like, honestly, the nature of the beast, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so I, I didn't realize, so you're a non-union. Not anymore, but I, okay, I was yeah. when I made Saw X. Yeah. Wow. Why were they looking for a non-union specific DP? I think that they were shooting in Mexico city. And so mm-hmm. I think they didn't want to deal with like the possibility of any American unions being involved outside of SAG and DGA. Um, you How know, fascinating to do a hundred million dollar uh, a box office. Yeah. What was the, what was the budget of the film? Do you know? Was I was point? always told seven to 10 Okay. And if, but every other Saw movie outside of Spiral and the first film, the first film was made for a million. And then mm-hmm. the, um, every other movie has been like 10 to 13 million. Okay. And, uh, Spiral was made for like 20 and mm-hmm. Spiral just didn't do very well in the box office. Um, mm-hmm. so I think they were looking to kind of find a different approach, see if that might work. They decided, you know, this is the first of the franchise to shoot in Mexico city. Yeah. And, I had shot a movie in Mexico city before. And so I know they were, they had already talked to a bunch of DPs, uh, both non-union and union DPs. And a lot of people were nervous about shooting in Mexico. I think, you know, the expectations around a film like this and it being the 10th movie, it's, I think there's a lot of, you know, it wasn't right for a lot of people, but when I heard about it, I was like, that's, this sounds really exciting. And, mm. you know, I loved the first film when I was in high school, I'd seen it. And, <laughs> and I, I came, grew up in like a very fundamentalist Christian kind of background. So it was a movie that made an impact on me in high school, alongside a bunch of other films, like everything from seven to battleship Potemkin to uh, seventh seal, you know, and it's yeah. it just was one of those movies I saw at a formative stage. And so when I heard about it, I was like, well, I don't, I know that our money will go further in Mexico. I know that we'll get great crew. I know we'll get great, you know, have a great production there. And in it did give us the ability to create a saw film that had, you know, a more expansive perspective that dealt with new characters that also took us to new locales. So I think, 
I don't know. Like I haven't talked to anyone at length about what they were, why they were looking in that direction. But I, my suspicion is, you know, they just, you're looking for people who are excited to make a movie in Mexico at this budget level. <laughs> um, and for me like that, you know, I knew that what that would mean cause I'd done that before. So I never had any trepidation about it. And, you know, frankly, um, was, ex- you know, I'm, it's the most money I've ever made on a movie. So like there, there were only good things. It's just been also the aftermath of a film like that has also been watching, like there's not been any immediate aftermath other than like, there's been a decent amount of publicity and, you know, some really cool write-ups and some stuff in like American cinematographer and, oh, awesome. um, you know, a lot of fans who've really connected with it, but I haven't in terms of the world at large, because projects are just now starting to, yeah, kind of form up for next year. Um, it didn't result in a bunch of people calling me and it didn't result in like, you know, a bunch of new agencies like, you know, or other agencies starting to talk to me. So it's, it's been very much, it's sort of like in a way it's a helpful thing to experience at the age I'm 35 okay. at the age of 35 to be like, Oh, my life, you know, <laughs> doesn't feel that different. Yeah. Um, and so you have to really do this because you love the work and because you love what you do. And I understand that like it will mean different things on other movies in the future. Um, but I was also very fortunate that like I shot saw and then immediately like a month later, I, I came back from Mexico. I had COVID on the movie. I had food poisoning on the movie. And a month later I got back and I went and shot another movie in Georgia. And that's when I joined the union because that was a union film. Cool. And I made less money on that movie than the cost of joining the union. It, um, you know, it's $17,900 for a DP. So, oh. and it's a tier one movie, you know, it's a $4 million, $5 million movie. So I was like, okay, so my first union film was six day weeks. I'm losing money to do it. And like, the rates were worse than I made on, you know, a non-union film in Mexico and the hours were worse, even though we were working six day weeks in Mexico. So I was also a little disenfranchised in that process about, because also I wasn't allowed to operate on the film because I I couldn't, you know, I joined on the movie, so I couldn't submit a letter. Um, Hmm. So it was just a lot of learning curves. I don't look at it as any other, anything other than that. You know, like you, you sort of, as you like, uh, try new things and do new things, you're going to find bumps along the way and, and things that, you know, connect or don't connect. And like, um, you know, I'm very thrilled with having been able to do both of those films. And also like, I knew ultimately you can't be a DP long, you know, for very long and not eventually have to join the union. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of just like, in a way I look at it as like a long-term career and, you know, once again, it's like, these are really exciting and fantastic, but it also was like, okay, well now I do have a leg to like stand on in terms of negotiating. And, you yeah. know, did you, did you feel like you had to stay true to a look? Cause this is the, you know, they've made 10 movies now from this franchise. Did you feel like you had to borrow from previous films or did they give you creative license to make it your own? Yeah. So, um, for Sox, the you know I, the franchise is something that Kevin doesn't like calling it a franchise, but I mean the the series of movies is something that has been in pop culture for you know twenty years now, and I still remember what excited me about the first movie when I saw it, and as the franchise has gone on, 
it's kind of gotten away from that. The last two movies, Spiral and Jigsaw, were both shot, you know, 239. They were, you know, widescreen films. They're sort of connected to the Saw universe, but not directly connected Mm -hmm. to the timeline or the storyline. And um, what was really exciting about this film was it was the first Saw film that had Tobin Bell as the lead character. You know, it sort of took the antagonist of the franchise and made him into the protagonist and tried to give him the audience emotional reasons to connect with him. So it's told through his emotional framework and point of view. So I think our script was different in a, for a variety of reasons. One, we had that aspect. Two, this movie set between Saw 1 and 2. So I felt in the language of this film, you know, we wanted to get back to what early Saw films did. They had sort of gotten away because as the franchise moved into digital, they, you know, they were no longer doing these like very cool rollouts on film that they would cut into the movie and where they'd literally have like the magazine starting to, you know, shut down because it's losing power. They would turn the magazine on and off as they're shooting mm-hmm. to get those like wobbly kind of rollouts and those stutter frames. And so as the franchise mm-hmm. and the movies have gone digital and started to do that, they have looked for new looks, but I think at the expense of what made Saw great. Saw's Saw, the feeling of Saw is that you want a tetanus shot, right? It's, right. you know, it's a bit giallo. It's a bit heightened expressionistic. There's, I sort of describe it as seven by way of a new metal music video. So it's sort of like, you know, it's in that world, right? It's yeah. shadowy and noirish and there's deep contrast, but it's also gritty and grimy and textural. Yeah. So we wanted to bring that like grittiness, that griminess and that textural quality back because the last two movies were shot digital we shot digital as well but they were shot very clean like clean glass clean Mm. approach clean aesthetic and that's not saw that's like saw is rugged and it's ripped up and it's a bit you know moldy and rusty (laughs) and oxidized right and so i didn't feel no one was ever looking over my shoulder in the sense of like is this matching our franchise or the franchise look it was more that i was like this is set between one and two um, Kevin and I talked at length about the look and at length about every scene from shot listing to look design. I talked with the production designer about color palette. So all that's baked in, you know, there's a very thematically baked in color arc to the entire film. And I borrowed colors from Saw 1 and Saw 2 as a part of that and from mm-hmm. Saw 3 and, and Saw 6 as well. But Part of it for me was those movies have very monochromatic looks. It's very like we're in a very ochre yellow, like jaundiced yellow sort of environment and saw two very much like the trap house is that kind of a look um, like the needle pit and all that. But then you go into saw one and you have these like very poisonous, like arsenical kind of greens. And you've yeah. got this very like, you know, uh, fluorescent blues and that kind of a thing. So I was taking those tones and then also this like heightened red palette, right? And I was weaving them into the movie in a way that's, you know, Saw X sort of goes from a monochromatic silvery whitish blue tone in the US in the beginning of the film. And as it's like, you know, this guy discovering he's dying of cancer. And then we like enter Mexico and it's, yes, we're using something that's a trope, this like golden <laughs> look, right? But it was yeah. much discussed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it's like, is this the right choice? And the things we settled on were we want people to know we've made this transition to Mexico. It is a good contrast to the like colder tones of the US. And we wanted Mexico to feel golden and lush and rich and vibrant and red and green and gold, right? Yeah. And then once John realizes, fuck, I've been scammed, you know, we sort of set the scam in this, like, the only white light in the movie is, like, inside the operating theater. 
Mm-hmm. And that's like the white points of the movie. Everything else is not neutral. That is neutral in how it's approached and shot. Why? Why? What was the what was the thought process behind making that neutral? Well, I mean, because the film is sort of, so you get to Mexico, it's gold, it's rich, it's lush. And like, you know, I had nine days to color the movie and there's 4,000 shots in it. So <laughs> I would have loved, the last day I watched the movie before we finished, you know, and then they call it on color. It's like, I got to see the movie once in succession. And it's like, boy, I would love to have watched it with the music. None of that was in, you uh-huh, know? So yeah. like I, there's things I would obviously shift, but in general, I'm really proud and happy with it. Oh, totally. It's so, amazing. Yeah. You know, it goes from this like golden kind of thing. And then what we wanted was we're like, John Kramer is brilliant. Right. But he, he's still a human. And this movie shows his flaws as a human for the first time in the series. And so we were kind of, the conversation was like, well, how do we make this operating theater where he's going to have brain surgery done? feel like something John would buy into in the middle of this abandoned factory, um, this chemical plant. It's technically was a glass factory, what we shot in. But Mm. so our idea was, well, let's take one of these like mobile, you know, vestibules that you can buy. Like I looked them up online to see how they lit them and what they look like. And you can pay like 20 grand to get like basically a glass outfitted, like mobile medical unit. I mean, obviously you have to know how to use the shit and you got to put stuff in it. But like if they're running a scam where they're scamming these people like 400 K a person and they're scamming 10 people and they're bringing them out here, you know what I mean? They have an operation. Right. And so the idea was we want something that feels very futuristic and, you know, very clean and very, so in a way it was like, we wanted to go to this very clean and kind of, um, you know, it's lit by a top light for, for fluorescence that are built into the space. Mm-hmm. It's an all glass enclosed area. And so it was very much like we wanted that to kind of become this point in the movie where John feels okay. John feels safe. John feels like everything is, you know, uh, completely sanitized and completely clinical. And yeah. then, you know, he gets out of that and we have this sort of burst of like, you know, the most saccharine moments in any Saw film, he thinks he's going to live. And it's him drawing traps at the park, which is really great and funny. And like, you know, so we kind of live in those lush sort of tones. But then when John decides to go back and say thank you, uh, he realizes he's been scammed. The camera breaks into starting some of our first handheld work in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we do some zollies and some stutter camera stuff where we like attach cameras together and do some fun stuff. Nice. And then... um yeah, and then the movie sort of from there descends into like, you know, those jaundiced yellow tones, those like flickering whites, the red uh, giallo colors, the and kind of my approach to the lighting was, okay, this is ultimately constructed by John Kramer, and you know, John Kramer is the one who's actually designed this as an you know as a theat- I mean, it's very theatrical. He's designed this trap, and he's also designed the way in which this will unfold. Part of that in my head is. John has all of these traps on circuit timers. And so every time a trap fires on lights within the trap and lights above the trap and around the trap fire on. And then if, as the traps conclude, whether someone survives or dies, the trap lights shut off. And so part of my challenge was, you know, a lot of the major, once John scammed, the movie moves into abduction sequences and then into trap sequences and most of those happen the exact abductions happen in the world the traps happen in one kind of major game space and so the the abductions i sort of like the colors i decided i want to do play with color in like sort of three levels right so there's primary secondary and tertiary colors in the spaces and in the abductions Mm -hmm. and so i was playing with like sodium baked 
wallpaper background lighting out, you know, that street light outside of the warehouse, whereas within the base lighting of the warehouse is ochre yellow. And then we have these accent like practicals that are, and everything is LED and controllable, but yeah. it's all housed within real functional, you know, uh, industrial fixtures. Yeah. Yeah. So it all looks like it's built in. And awesome. the idea was basically build this like three dimensional world where you can go and shoot anywhere and still get, yeah, some of it's going to be top lit and some of it's going to be scuzzy and a bit, you know, gross, but that's kind of the look. That's kind of the and, look. Yeah, exactly. What yeah. units were you using? What LED, uh, LEDs were you using? Yeah. LEDs. So, so basically what I did was I designed and I have like a full grid built out, but we built it all into the space. So there's no actual like truss builds. There's nothing like that. Wow. We, we used um, aperture bulbs in like probably 30 lights rigged around the space. Astera is in like all the fluorescent, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot of fluorescent. All the flickering, lower- all the teals, all the... Yeah. 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 And the house and actually the warehouse is like, it just had those fluorescent fixtures already in it. And so oh, cool. in terms of like the fixtures themselves, so I had them change where they were placed to match like our look and stuff. Mm-hmm. But basically, yeah, we rigged, we like put Asteros within all those and then I had control of those. And so like, even when Mateo's brain trap happens, it's like the idea is like, boom, lights shut off and then green, you know, I'm not changing the color of any individual fixture. It's like units are shutting off or turning on as though they're associated with, circuit breakers because this is 2005 tech this is john kramer it's not done in like a dj sort of way it's done in a way that's like these are legitimate real working lights that are turning on or off you know with around each of these traps yeah and then i i rigged um i had sky panels outside of all the windows and we actually tented this whole warehouse (laughs) um because we had to shoot a bunch of day for night partially because tobin's in his 80s and doesn't like working nights anymore but also like there was no reason for us to waste our time doing you know make everyone get tight i love doing night for night if it's outside and sure but inside if i can control it and it won't harm the look i'm like this is you know better for all of our like creative capacity. Um, And then I use maxi brutes to line kind of the back and we had those on wrap packs so we could kind of control that, those levels. And then I used some LEDs I'd never used in my gaffer on. That was like mini SL1 and mini mix SL1 and some other, I think they're Lumiere products. Yeah, DMG or or Mm -hmm. something. Yeah. 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 Uh And then we used, I kept MC7s on the cameras for eye lights. Perfect. Just um, just, pop. Yeah. Yeah. Just anytime I needed, I would be able to control that. And then, because we we're shooting two cameras the whole time. Uh, a, um, B, a BC7 or an MC? The MCs, like the little okay. like, yeah, yeah, square yeah. ones. Yeah. 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 I know that there's like the dot dash, which I used on the last movie, and like some people have gotten into that. But no, I, I, I always have an MC on like a little Noga arm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah, that was great for that. And then, um, I actually use the orbiter lights as my like dive four. So the space was built and part of the challenge is like, you know, it's not because it's a spend right for construction to build out the space mm-hmm. that spend started happening right before production. And we basically broke the movie up into two segments. We shot all the non-prosthetics work in 2022 and then all the prosthetics work happened in the beginning of 2023. Oh wow. And, that was partially because as the movie was being designed, they switched prosthetic shops and the prosthetic mm. shop we went with, which they're fractured effects. They're fucking great. They did the Nick, they did Westworld, they did eyes of Tammy Faye. Like yeah. they just do great work. And, um, 
they needed more time and they're like, we need 10 weeks to do this without overtime with a shop of 30. So it was like, mm. we were five weeks out from production. And at the time it was like, we basically shot through November into the beginning of December. And then we took a hiatus for the month of December. And then we came back in January and finished. Gotcha. Um, and in that process, most of the set builds that were like the warehouse and the trap stuff was built at the end of our shooting schedule and the beginning of our, so like I didn't have my lighting, like I pre-rigged the Friday before we shot and then used my black magic. Cause I didn't have cameras on set to like <laughs> test, it. test the levels real <laughs> yeah. quick and then built individual looks as we went. Cause I, I just wasn't. They didn't give me the budget to have more like pre lighting, pre lighting. Yeah, did you days. did you bake? Did you like come up with any LUTs with your colors beforehand, or was this just a? What did you shoot on? And was it just yeah. like? I, yes. I have so many questions. Yeah, anything. Yeah. Um. So I tested a bunch of cameras, but we were we had a 4K capture mandate for the release. Uh-huh. So I was exclusively looking at the Mini LF and the Venice. Uh-huh. The Venice Two was out of our price range for two camera systems. Oh wow. Um, and cause even on a movie like this, you're still, the numbers still have to make sense. And it's like yep. in Mexico, what's going and how many of these units even exist. Right. Totally. We only had one lens set. We didn't have two lens sets. Cause oh, I used wow. a set of the cook classics, the cook classic pink rows, the modern, yeah. they're like those modern ones. Yeah. Did you, the, the full frame? Uh, um, we actually didn't shoot full frame. We shot super 35. Oh, on what camera? The Venice. So oh, we you did go to Venice. Okay. Yeah. We went original yeah. Venice. Yeah. And the reason, the main reason I went original Venice was twofold. One was the Alexa mini LF, the lenses that were available were not, there wasn't, there were not enough vintage options really available in Mexico. Yeah. And I, and I needed something more vintage because we were trying to hark it back to that like 35 millimeter pushed, you know, film look. And I, with the digital sensor, I'm like, I need it to find ways to do that. So soften it up. Yeah. Yeah. So we used, um, yeah, those lenses on a, on the Venice, the Venice, I mean, other reasons I shot with the Venice, these didn't, the main factor was the lenses, if I'm being honest, Mm -hmm. but we shot 4k four three on the Venice. And then we had a one eight five, you know, that image we were framing for. Okay. But I just wanted to be able to have the room up and down to reframe if we decided we want to. Cool. Um, and then we used, the Venice also, you know, I love the built-in ND is great. Um, the Rialto mode is great, although we only used it once on the movie. Um, it's does have a faster shutter, you know, so like oh, we, yeah. we did some blank firing on the movie and that stuff is, you know, you usually have to rebuild those in post on the Mini or the Mini LF. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm, you know, I've shot probably 95% of my work on the Alexa Mini or the Mini LF. So it was a transition. And what I ended up doing was I, I tested camera systems first and then i did like three or three to five sets of lenses um and i basically ended up doing like six different camera tests and i would have loved to have done more but the way it worked and the way i worked with the rental house in mexico was i was only able to shoot them there i I needed crew and tech to do it so it was a cost and i couldn't just do it whenever i wanted yeah so i ended up doing like once we landed on the venice then i did a bunch of tests of lenses once we settled on lenses i did a bunch of tests of filters then once we settled on filtration which we ended up using a pearlescent one. Oh, cool partially because the actors are 20 years older and partially Mm -hmm. because it just i love the way it bloomed the highlights but we we were looking for something with a bit of an aggressive look 
Yeah. And then um, we ended up, then I did a gel test where I just tested all my gels. And in the in so as I'm doing all these lens tests and stuff, I'm taking that and I'm building LUTs myself because okay. the DIT wasn't brought on until <laughs> I think the Saturday before. And like by that point, I was like, well, the problem I ran into though was my LUTs were not vetted in exteriors. And because I hadn't been able to take the camera outside of the rental house because a huge warehouse EFD. And I just didn't realize, no, I have to actually like press to shoot this outside because my LUTs were too contrasty, hmm. which is not terrible for a Saw movie. And like, but the people got a little nervous at first. I'm like, trust me, the, the data's not gone. It's all there. Like, it's all there. there. Yeah. You know what I mean? We're just looking at a bleach bypassy look. But we did, I would say, that bleach bypassy like Saw look that I developed, it, ended up like even when we got into the color session, cause I didn't know who our colorist was going to be until after we shot the movie. Um, we ended up going with a colorist. Um, I don't remember his last name, but this guy named Kevin who works at this uh, post house called urban post in Toronto. Mm -hmm. They did all the sound. They've done the sound for the last like nine or eight awesome. saw movies. So we did all the sound there and then they did a deal with the post house and did color there. And so I worked with Kevin for like nine days and um, yeah, we just like, we worked and worked and worked the footage, you know what I mean? But most of the material that was shot in lit spaces, not involving exteriors, we used my LUT to start off. Cause as we were building, I'm like, we're just not getting there fast enough. And mm -hmm. like, we have too much material to cover. It's just too much, you know, 4,000 shots is a lot of, <laughs> so, a lot of images, so many. you know? Oh. Yeah. How many shooting just, days? 33. 33. Did you so feel like it was, it was enough? Yeah, just enough. Like we would always take more time. We were rushed, you know, there's 35 minutes of deleted scenes and the movie's two hours. So it's like, we shot all of that material. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, there's most of the traps, are you shooting them in like a day or a day and a half? Yeah. So it's very tight, right? And our shot lists are very like, they're designed around the breaks with the prosthetics, the breaks with, so Kevin, it's not even, it's not like you're giving this to an AD and saying, I need these shots, schedule it. Kevin, the director is sitting there and saying, okay, I know that the prosthetics are going to take this amount of time. The stunt work is going to take this amount of time. Um, the VF, these are VFX shots. These are not. And so all of that is built into our shot list and all the turnarounds and all the times are so that we know, like, and you really, once you start shooting, you're not, you know, Part of the, th I mean, I was taking very much a 360 degree lighting approach. Part of that was because the look of saw fits this kind of lit by practicals, lit with, you know, real, like authentic looking light. Yeah, things um, can fall in and out and, and that's totally acceptable. Exactly. And like the beginning of the film, I went with a more shaped, more like Rembrandt kind of a, mm. you know, shaped kind of looks. But then once we're into that, that stuff, you know, those traps, it's supposed to be them sweaty and it's grimy and gritty and brutal. Yeah. And so I did like this kind of, like every time I softened it up to help the actors look younger, it was like, ah, this looks too like cosmetic and glamorous it should be a little rougher you know what i mean uh -huh. and so that was kind of like this thing that yeah we sort of you know we dealt with it's it's just the traps always could use a little more time um but i would say saw x is the first movie i've shot where you know literally kevin was like we this is what we need and we never we were never like we're cutting shots like i added shots you know what i mean awesome and, and even like once I got COVID, like I was operating weeks one through four. And then the last two weeks I had an A cam and a B cam operator. So like I would, once I had seen the frames, 
and like saw that what we were getting was good, I would go grab my black magic and shoot other pieces. <laughs> and like all of the Mateo trap brain like trap, we did that in a single day. And it's like, I just took my black magic pocket. I have a six K pocket and I took like a 70 to 200 and I started lens whacking and pulling focus and zooming and stuff. <laughs> Does it end up, did it end up in the film? Oh yeah. All the like stutter oh, frames. Amazing. Yeah. You shoot like six frames a second, 270 degree shutter. And then you're just like snap zooming and playing. And it's like, we didn't have time to shoot that on the Venice. So yeah. like all that stuff made it into the movie because it's, you know, even like in the movie, there's like on the bloodboarding trap, there's a shot where the camera's like looking down John's face, you know, as the blood's like pouring over the camera and him. We shot that on my black magic because the time to rig a Venice yeah. would have been a lot more time. And like we didn't, you know, it, it needed to be able to like travel on the seesaw rig. And I was like, yeah, like wrap the camera up and let's just throw it out there. Did you and throw like, some like Canon EF glass on mm-hmm. there and just, you just rocked it yeah. roll? Yeah, because it's like nobody's going to know. Like that's the thing. Like there's probably 30 shots or 40 shots shot on my black magic in that movie. (laughs) But I'm using like – yeah, I've got – like I've got like a bunch of weird lenses. You know, not not anymore. I ended up buying a set of Rokinons just to have something that matched. But like, yeah, it's EF glass. It's not – I found that – Did you get a kit rental at all for that stuff? I did have a kit rental in the movie. So like okay, yeah. they, yeah, I had like a box kit rental. So like my laptop, my iPad, my la- lighting meter, my, all that shit, you know, that, yeah. that stuff. Yeah. But like, even at this point I bought that camera, I, I did a movie in 2021 and we were shooting, it was for shutter and it was like a half million dollar movie. I think maybe at 600 K, but a pretty low budget movie. We yeah. shot in 18 days and um, we were shooting on Alexa mini and the, our budget was very much tapped out. I mean, everybody on the crew was making 300 a day. Like yep. they, you know, which is a little bit of a thing when you're doing a movie like that. And it's like, well, the PAs are also making that, but I understood <laughs> the producers like logic of like, this is such a low rate that let's just pay everyone the same. Yeah. And like, it's something I respect about those producers, but mm-hmm. I'm also like, man, like this is tough because once anyway, once I started losing ACs, I couldn't, but anyway, this Shutter movie, we were doing that on Alexa Mini, and the director is a two-camera director. She's this um, – I did this movie in Georgia with her. Her name's Mercedes Bryce Morgan, really talented director. She does a lot of commercial music video, but we've done two movies together now. And she's a two-camera director. She just thinks in two cameras. She works with two cameras. My last four movies have been two-camera movies. Um, and Spoonful of Sugar, the Shutter movie, was my first two-camera movie. Mm-hmm. And – she was just so devastated. She wasn't going to have two cameras. And I was like, well, I've been thinking about buying a camera for a while. And like, I know the pocket camera can cut with the Alexa. You just have to shoot with it. Right. You know, don't overexpose it. Like, you know, use like I was using like vintage Nikon lenses to cut with super speeds. And like, I bought like a little kit for that movie as a way to be like, Hey, I'm going to give you what, you know, the movie you want. Like I, and, and knowing that, and then since then I've used it on every movie since then as a B or a C camera and I will just use it and pull it out. And like, you know, it's, it's cut with the Venice. It's cut with the mini LF. Like I wouldn't say that I don't use, I mean, and it cut with the mini, we used it as a B camera. Like 40% of that movie was black magic pocket camera, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody noticed because you just have to shoot it correctly and grade it. Yeah. It's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, so I love that about even like when I started ten years ago, I was using because I started in digital, um, 
you know, I was using like XL1, XL2, <laughs> HVX200, uh, you know, old Ikigami cameras and shit like that. Uh-huh. And then when the, the, the DSLR revolution kind of happened and then I started using the 5D and the T2i, but you know, I was like, yeah, it's all been a process. You know, I've used every, like all the major digital camera systems I've used at some point, except the Vericam. Yeah. I mean, I haven't used the Vericam. So I want to talk to you about the, uh, the interview process, how you heard about the film. Mm-hmm. Was it through your agent? And, and then talk to me about like how you go from shooting a $600,000 film to now a maybe $10 million saw mm-hmm. studio film. Like what, what does that process look like? Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's path is different and like, there's really no one way. And I've been, you know, at this for 10 years. Um, no, I Nick, mean, that's not the answer. We, we want very, very uh, uh, binary <laughs> response I here. Wish, yeah. <laughs> I wish, you know, like, cause I had those questions too, in a lot of ways. And it's like, you know, and, and in some ways like saws on the edge of my tastes and interests, you know, mm-hmm. like, cause I'm also like, it's something I'm very interested in and love and I love horror, but it's also like, you know, I want to be doing other, like, I want to do another Saw movie. Like if they do another one and Kevin's directing it, I'm like, you know, that I will do. If it's, if Kevin's not directing, I'll have to have a real think about it. Interesting. Um, Just because, yeah, I mean, that's a really big part of what makes a film worth doing. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but I think that probably will happen. Um, So uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of the interview process, it's, it's every movie is a little different, but in general, my experience has been the same on every movie. Um, if it's not a friend who's trying to get me brought on, it's, you know, if it's someone new, which Kevin, uh, was new to me, I'd never met him before. Um, they, uh, so the production, there was like a consulting producer who basically reached out to zero gravity management and, they were so I presume they've been reaching out to other agencies and they reached out to them as part of it. And then my name among some other names got put up as like a, a possibility. And I imagine they like, I've never asked Kevin, but they probably looked at reels from a bunch of different people. And then, um, you know, said, well, this person looks like somebody who might be interesting, go ahead and send them the script if they're interested, you know? And so I had to sign an NDA, got a, script called party invite, um, which was just the working title to keep, you know, any leaks under wraps. And then I read the script and interviewed five hours later. So it was very quick, you know, read the script, had my feelings about it. Um, saw Kevin, the director's lookbook. And so I had a sense of what he thought about the movie and what he saw the movie being. And so it was really just a conversation and it went for like an hour and a half maybe yeah but what were your what were your feelings i want to i want to be a uh, fly on the wall in that room you know did you did you come in (laughs) yeah super nervous i'm sure (laughs) but like but did you did you have thoughts that you or things that you didn't like about the script that you had felt brave enough to bring up or were some things like like what was that conversation like it was a very just it was a very straightforward honest conversation i i think you know the main kevin and i started chatting and it was like just getting a sense of who we are as people. I'm really like, I think I can't work with an artist on like a movie if they don't have a sense of my personal story and my personal journey. Mm. You know, I think my experiences as a human being are what make me the storyteller that I am today. Mm. And so I do try to kind of, you know, it did start with like a very generalized 
conversation about art and about the films we're interested in and about this specific Saw film, but also about, you know, the other Saw films and our experiences with them. So it was a very just like general conversation I felt at to start. Um, I felt like we connected over a lot of other art, you know, we connected over photographers, we connected over everything from Jodorowsky to, you know, um, the original Saw film. And so I think there's like, it was very much just like a vibe sense, you know, like, yeah. do we like speak a similar language? And like, I had worked with some actors he'd worked with, like I'd worked with Steven Dorf, you know, and he'd mm-hmm. done a movie with Steven and like, I'd worked with, um, I think like there were some other actors in there. I'd worked with some other people he'd worked with. And so we were able to kind of talk about that and talk about the experience of making these and sort of films to get, you know, and, and at that point I had done this movie with John Travolta and Steven Dorf. So, there was some degree of like, Hey, I know what it's like to work with, you know, I'd worked with, I've worked with ice cube and was Khalifa and been on set with Taiga and some other celebrities. And so I think there's just like a degree of like, Oh, okay. This person won't be weird around Tom and Mel. And <laughs> there's sort of like, yeah, yeah it's some yeah. of that. And then, you know, I'm a genuine fan of, uh, I didn't, I stopped watching after saw three. Um, Cause I think I went to college and just kind of moved on to other things. But, you know, I had seen one through three as like a really, you know, excited fan in high school. So very much it was just talking about what did we love about the Saw films? What did we hope the Saw films could bring back? You know, what did what did we want to see in a Saw movie? Um, and then, yeah, it was the script. And I said, look, I think this is the best script of the franchise that I've seen. You know, this is it's got a strong emotional hook. It's centered around Tobin Bell as a performer, and he's an amazing performer. And I was like, I think this has a chance to be the best film that gets made in the franchise. And that's what I said in the interview because it's how I felt. Yeah. And it's how I felt when we finished shooting the movie and it's how I feel about the movie now. And it's because the strength of the movie is because the there's a great emotional arc to the film and it centers around a really interesting and fascinating character. Mm-hmm. You know, and none of the other films had quite been able to get into that space as dramatically. So I felt like it was giving fans access to an emotional story they've always wanted. Um, And then there were things I didn't like about the script. There was some very movie stuff in it. I mean, most of that I think made the, you know, got cut out of the movie really. And like Kevin's a very, I mean, he's such a savvy editor that it's like, you know, he's been cutting for decades and it's like, there's scenes in that, that were, you know, when we shot him, it was a two day, took us two days to shoot the scene because it's a 10 page scene and it's like Kevin got in and that scene's three minutes now, you know, and it's like, of it. yeah, yeah, he's just good about like, he's just a fantastic editor. There's a reason he likes to shoot two cameras, you know, but that didn't scare me either. We talked about Mexico and that didn't, you know, was in no way off putting to me. Um, and I ended up hiring a lot of my crew that I worked with in Mexico City that I'd worked with the last time I was there. This, um, yeah, first AC named Sitla Vargas, who's just, if you go to Mexico City and you want to, fucking amazing first ACU puts together a great team of people yeah. that are in like, you know, not all men fucking Sith Lolly hire her. She's great. Okay. Um, yeah. I love working with her. She's just like, you know, those like Hobbit people that have good energy and yeah. like, you're like, it's the 11th hour or the 14th hour. And like, you're still laughing and telling <laughs> jokes and pulling focus like a motherfucker. Like that is what she is. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, so the interview process was that it was the one interview. I didn't talk to anyone else, not anyone from the studio, no producers. I gave him the names of five directors I'd done f- features with and a short with. So he talked to, I know he talked to four of the five 
Um, I asked all of them how it went because, of course, there were friends of mine and I was curious. <laughs> and I asked all of them before I sent their info because I'm like, wow. hey, I need more so I share this. He called the different directors and said, what was your experience working with Yes. Wow. And everybody, and as you continue to move in this world, that is what people do. Like, I do that with gaffers now. Like, every time yeah. I hire a gaffer or a key grip that I don't know, I, I do that and text and call like three to four people. So it does make the interview process a little challenging because it's just like, if I've never worked with someone, it's like I, I get in my head really hard about it because you're cho- sometimes choosing between two great candidates that different people are saying different things about, you know, and it's just you have to go with your gut and whatever. But yeah, so Kevin, I know all, all of his experiences with cinematographers had not all been glowing. And I think just because some of the people he'd worked with it had either not been a good fit or a good you know, collaborative vibe. Yeah. And so, um, and once, I don't know any of these people, but Kevin was just like, you know, he's done movies in the saw world. He's done movies outside of the saw world. He's worked a decent amount as a director, you know, and he's done other kinds of studio films too. So he's, he, he has, he knows the system and the process. And so his question for the directors and from what I understand was a lot about, am I collaborative to work with? Am I a team player? You know, our interview had gone well. So I think he got a good vibe, but then, you know, someone could say, I mean, Mm, in an interview. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. Someone can be great in an interview, but terrible on set. And, but, but these are all like people that, I mean, I rarely make a movie with somebody I can only think of one of 10 movies that I've made with somebody and not walk away being pretty good friends. Mm -hmm. Some of them are not people I keep up with. You know, a lot of people move away from the industry and, um, you know, we just, our paths don't cross, but, um, yeah, in general, like I've always walked away being friends. So, and that's because when I go in to make a movie, the point for me, I want to make a great film that I'm proud of, but I also want to serve the director's vision, you know, genuine. It's like, I saw this Rodrigo Prieto thing where he said, you know, he has to fall in love with the director a little in order to make the movie. And mm-hmm. there's a way in which I see the study of the director as a study of, you know, it's a character study of the director and their, their point of view on life. Interesting. Um, and I just am fascinated by that, their psychology. And so there is a part of that, you know, I mean, I probably didn't get enough validation as a kid. So that's part of why I'm a cinematographer. <laughs> I like hearing the directors be happy with it. <laughs> Oh my um, gosh. I hope none of my, none of my directors are listening because they'll absolutely know that that's exactly how I feel about it too. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah do you, so do you like it? Do you like it? Tell me yeah. if you like it. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, that was the interview process on that. And, um, and that was that. My, so, so yeah, that was, and, yeah. How, how long after the interview did, um, did they reach out again? For, oh, two, day, for the, two days. Two days. And they said, we, yeah, wanna, that, we want you to shoot it. Yep. The next day was them talking to the directors and the day after was them hiring me. So I came down to Mexico a few weeks after that. It was very fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, you asked some other questions. I can't remember what one was. How do you go from $600,000 movie to that? Yeah. Um, yeah. That is a great question. <laughs> I forgot about that one. <laughs> How uh, do you do it? Like, well, you're, 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 yeah. Did you, did your crew change? Did you hire a gaffer down in Mexico? Did you? Oh yeah. Your- so, at this point in my career, I don't get to travel crew with me really any any time. Yeah. Um, the movie I did in Georgia, I got to travel my A cam operator in, mm-hmm. and so I brought in a steady cam op and a. Um, I really tried hard to get him on saw because he's he's from Philadelphia, but I met him in L.A. We've done a few mo- movies together, and 
is this guy named Dalton Price. Oh, and, I love uh, Dalton. Dalton. Oh, you my, know Dalton? He's my favorite, man. Okay. So I've, been using, I've been using Dalton for years and years and years. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah, so Dalton, I tried to get him on Saw because he was in Mexico. I know. But he didn't he have his papers. Spanish now. Oh. Yeah, he didn't have his papers, so I couldn't get him. Shoot. Um, but I ended up getting somebody he had worked with um, on a show in, in like west of Mexico. I don't remember where they were shooting, but this operator named Edgar Luzania. Who, and so they were really good friends. And so, and Luzania is fucking amazing and really great. Um, oh, I miss Dalton. So yeah, inevitably my crew is different on everything. You know yeah. what I mean? Like yeah. if you were to say the last four movies I've done, I haven't had the same people on any of them. Hmm. Yeah. I don't think. Yeah. yeah, no. I've had different gaffers and different ACs and different. It's so how, just what, what it is. That, what is that uh, like? Especially if someone like a gaffer yeah. is so pivotal in yeah. in in your your workflow. How are you able to communicate with different gaffers? Yeah, and um and and get the outcomes that you're looking for. Yeah, I mean, for me, I do a few of it. Some of it's prep. So the main thing is, I have a very Usually what I do is I select references. I don't always put together a lookbook. Sometimes I do. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I find lookbooks just to be a, an annoying, like, pain in the ass. Like, where I'm just <laughs> like, this This isn't the process of making it. This is just us using other things to talk about the thing we're making. Yeah. Um, so that can be a little annoying. But I do like to have references that I show people. In this case, because there was, in, on Saw, there was a language barrier because mm. um, they didn't speak English. Yeah. And so, and Did your, your gaffer didn't speak English. No. So oh, I had to get, kidding I, me. We had to deal with translation Ooh. challenges. Wow. So I, I think, but in general, but I mean, Nacho was great. It's just, um, and I'd worked with him before. So we had mm. that mm. like commonality and Nacho makes, you know, great images as well. Like he's a great, you know, gaffer as well. So it's, it was just a language barrier. But what I do is in the prep process, I usually, I put together some form of, um, you know, whether it's a Google doc that has like, like the last movie, what I did was I took, I never worked with that gaffer. So I broke every scene out in a Google document. Then I wrote out like our approach to camera movement, our approach to lighting, our approach. I wrote all that out. Then I did a breakdown that was scene by scene where I took reference photos and reference images and you could see the entire arc of the movie in one document that I could just Mm. pull up and be like, this is where we are in the movie. (laughs) Um, On Saw, I, you know, because so much is intercut between the control room and the main floor, I and we shot all the control room and then the main floor, I had to know the lighting for every part of the space for the whole movie. So I actually built a document that had like every scene listed by color. And then even on saw, I took location stills and I would either draw on them where the lights went, or I would do overheads and draw on them. So I gave them a document with all uh, like where every practical light should be placed, where every light should be placed. Like it was very extensive. And are and, you, are you doing this in conjunction with the production designer or are you doing this kind of without? And no, then the production just, designer comes in and goes, okay, yeah, I'll give you a unit over there. Yeah, no, it's more like my thoughts and then I express them to the production designer. Mm. But like the conversations have been happening where I'm like, what's the kind of space this is? What's the sort of um, colors you're using? And so then I'm coming in and saying, well, I think that it's this. Or or I'll say, I need a point of light over here. And then if they'll bring in. And so we did like a test, you know, on one of the prep days, we tested all of our practicals and we just shot every single one to make sure there's no flickering, make sure there's no weird... Mm -hmm shade thing make sure there's they're controllable and dimmable um and so that you know is in in conjunction and 
But it really with the productions, I mean, it's really at a set dresser level at that level. Like they, the production designer and art director weren't doing a lot with it. It was very like, I'm just talking to the set dresser and, and figuring out what lights we wanted. Mm. Um, yeah. So I do think, you know, in general, I, if I can work with a gaffer I've worked with, that's great. But if not, I try to get them on board with the same sort of ideas. And then I'm just very particular about what we do. I try not to micromanage. Um, I usually get people enough leash. And then if things are just not lining up, I usually let them light something the way they think based on what we've talked about. And then I'll come in and make pretty exacting decisions. Um, that always makes me nervous. And I, and I, I'm always working with, with less than 33 days on my films. And yeah. so it's like, you know, it's the most I'd had. It's all been 18. Yeah. yeah for me, it's, it's between 12 and 18. And, and so it's like, for, for, especially on those 12 day shows, I can't, I can't give a leash. <laughs> I, I feel like too many gaffers, you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, I, I know very specifically what units need to go where. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I have to be pretty specific and it, and it breaks my heart a little bit because it's rather than yeah. having an artist, you, you have an SLT and, and, uh, and, and that bums me out a little bit, but, um, it's not going to be that way. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. that way on some, cause I did a movie in like the low, like in 14 days, you know, and it's, yeah. those are just, some of those are, yeah, it's like, you're still moving at a breakneck speed, even 33 days. I wasn't, you know, getting a chance to light every shot. It was right. very like light a space and go with that. And there were challenges due to the language barrier. And then in Georgia, the movie I did right after it, I just hadn't worked with that gaffer before. And she and I lit differently. Mm. And, and so mm. it took us, I would say it took us a week to find each other's style. And, you know, some of that was, that was my first job with Condors. It was my first job with, oh. you know, Arimax at like 18 Ks yeah. and doing like Condor work. So some of it was also just like me getting a sense of everyone I was working with. And Mm -hmm. it was also my first job working with like a DIT who was on site the whole time. And I ended up spending a little too much time in the tent and didn't like that. (laughs) So it was a little like, it just wasn't worth it. You know what I mean? I'm a better on set. I lead better from behind a camera. So even if I do another movie where Dalton's my A cam operator, which like I plan to, and Mercedes and I are loyal to crew and want to work with him again. Yeah. And, and frankly, Mercedes is a very technically complex director to work for. Mm. And I don't need to be the one figuring out how to operate those complex shots. Like, <laughs> you know, it's very, like, she's very challenging. Like, not as a person, just the shot design that she has is very Great. difficult. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and same with, like, even on Saw, it's like doing the techno crane. There's, multi, you know, compound techno crane shots. I don't need to be operating that. No. I can be focusing on lighting. So. Yeah. Yeah, I would say I bring in a lot of prep. I really work with the gaffer as much as I can. I'm very specific about what I want, mm-hmm. but I do try to give enough. I, I try not to like stifle it. Yeah, because if you if you like, I don't like to be micromanaged, and I will like freeze up if people do that. So I yeah. try not to do that to other people. Yeah. I try to like sort of set them free to make great images, and sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I guess it's like, but if you're doing lighting diagrams and it's like, okay, we have four yeah. orbiters back here, and we've got some maxi yeah. brutes, and then we've got some MCs, and we've got some BC sevens. It's like, yeah. and here's the diagram. Like, yeah. are they able to just go? Yeah, that that sounds good. Or, or was kind there a collaboration of. to say, like, it's, what if we switch this out for this unit? Or, or you know, like, yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, every movie's different. I mean, on Saw, they, you know, 
Nacho would come up to me and be like, sir, for me, it's better if we, and then, and I was like, yeah, that's great. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And it's like, so I would, the diagram was just a way to get the production manager to know what we were doing, get the production mm-hmm. designer and set mm-hmm. dresser to know what we were doing. Cause like I asked for 50 emergency lights, oh, wow. like the, the red spinners. Yeah. Cause I'm like, when the emergency look happens at the end of the movie, it needs to go all red. Uh-huh. And the production designer is like, oh, fuck, my budget's going to be fucked by like buying all those because we're already over budget. And, uh-huh. and I was like, well, I don't care whose budget it comes out of. It just needs to happen. You know what I mean? And then like, and then they made sound. So then I was getting yelled at because they're like, you know, the producer, like, we're going to do ADR on all this. And I'm like, I'm sorry. This is what this needs. And then we like, then we sent in a team and they cleaned them with like oil and then they were fine. But it was just like a whole thing. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I am very specific. I do have very specific wants and needs. It's just, you, you know, you work with everyone a little different. And like the guy after I did this $600,000 movie with, I'd worked with him on a bunch of music videos, this guy named Nate Thompson. He's mm. like fucking great gaffer. And Nate is like a DJ with led. Like he <laughs> knows like Nate is somebody that just can sit in his, you know, with lights on an iPad and just go da da da, and it's done, you yeah. know? And like, yeah. not everyone's that capable. And I had a team of three for Grip and Electric on that movie. And my swing was operating B camera, which was my black magic. (laughs) So we would light, then they would come in. And the reality was like, the images are really fantastic on that movie for what it is. Like it's a one, pretty much one location horror film. Um, What I would say in terms of going from like, there, there's no like direct path from a movie like that to a, a, a $10 million movie. Like that was my first horror film. Um, I've only done two horror films. Now I've done three, okay. but I did uh, Spoonful of Sugar, and then I did this movie called originally titled American Metal, but as a crime thriller. But they retitled it Mobland when they released it, which was a grave disappointment. Yeah, but, always is. Yeah, yeah. But then yeah. and then I did, um, yeah, and then this movie Bone Lake, which is another like five million dollar horror film. Mm-hmm. And really, what it was, I did all the movies in my career. I've done ten have been like $600,000 or less movies. And then in the last, like after the shutter movie, I just, I booked American metal was 5 million. Saul was 10 and, or whatever it ended up being. And then, yeah. And then this bone Lake was like five and really what I don't think there was a direct path. I think what it came down to was my collaborators and people I knew got into positions where they were getting more money. So that's Bone Lake and Moblin because both of those were movies I did with friends. And then um, Saab came because I was in the right place at the right time. And my work spoke to that kind of work. Yeah. So like I am very intentional about, I know that not everyone believes in having a reel. I believe in having a reel because when I look at operators, I watch their reel and nothing else usually. Mm. And it's not because I'm trying to be a dick. It's just because if I'm looking at six different operators – and I'm trying to make a quick decision because I'm not looking for it to be a half day decision. Right. Yeah. I'm going to go and I'm like, what's the thing that shows everything you've done in your best way, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And so I watch that and then I think about them and if it's down to two people, maybe I'll watch some more work, but usually I'm looking for faces, production value and impressive, you know, shot design. If I'm looking at good operators, sometimes you're just like, this person doesn't know how to shoot. Why are you sending me their stuff? You know what I mean? But if you're in the category of like, these are all talented and capable people, I'm like, does it look competent? Are there celebrities I recognize? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's those 
things. And so I take that approach thinking about directors and producers. Mm. I want them to go and have a way that in three minutes or less, really, in my opinion, if you can sell a two million or if you can sell a you know $200 million movie with a two and a half minute trailer, you as a cinematographer can sell your work in less than two and a half minutes. Oh, you know, that's and the, so I, I think yeah. about it as my attention span when I'm watching a reel dies at about a minute and a half. Hmm. So like I, How long is like, your reel? it's like a minute 40. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'm very like, and I, I'm very intentional about what music I select. I'm very intentional. And the other thing, which I would highly recommend you do like, so my reel is curated to be like, Shoot, wants to shoot dark images, wants to shoot horror, wants to shoot thrillers. And it's curated with images that speak to that and cut in a way that there's intentional, you know, the languages and or the images in the reel are speaking to each other. It's yeah. not just like, and, and I'm not doing a bunch of random, like, here's some food stuff I shot. Here's some <laughs> comedy. Here's some this. It's very intentionally designed. And, you know, I'm using a song that's in Zodiac. You know, it's Hurdy Gurdy Man. Like, I know people that knows... Fincher and like Zodiac will know that. Yeah. And like, those are the kind of people I want to work with. And, and then I'm front loading the beginning of the reel with faces. You know, if I have them, it's like you, you want people to trust you immediately. So yeah. front load it with things that make the, you trust them. And then I run it by five to 10 people before I, you know, put it out in the world. Mm-hmm. It's usually a couple directors, editors, and then some cinematographers I'm friends with. And I, the reason is, when I'm in, you know, this situation where 10 people are looking at my work and someone else's, I want them to have an initial impression that's just like, holy shit, who's this guy? And then it's, then it's like, can they look at my other work and think about that? And so yeah. it's not that I had done like a horror movie even that was in a, a context Kevin could see because at that point I had less work on my website. I had an older reel. It was that I had work from this movie I shot called Cuck that spoke to saw the saw language. I had this music video I shot that was very nine inch nails ask that I did with this director, Joe Michaud called um, human killer, which we shot in 16 millimeter. And it's this very Cronenberg esque thing where this guy goes and like cleans his body and then slices this weird gelatinous ball out of his flesh, but it's violent and it shows, you know, ability to shoot. And so I'd already been playing with these ideas of like, violence and sexuality in my reel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say there was no direct path. It's that it was that I, you know, cause every other movie I've gotten saw is the only movie I've gotten through my agency. Yeah. I've got shot 10 movies and all of them have been through my personal contacts otherwise, or like my networking or people recommending me. And, um, you know, hopefully in the future there'll be people who are like, Oh, I saw saw X and like, I'm a horror person and I want to make a horror film. And I was like, that was really clever. And you know, how did you do that? And maybe that will spark other conversations. But my suspicion is that will be a thing. People are like, Oh yeah. Okay. And then I have to actually prove that I'm not just the guy that shoots those kinds of images. Yeah. Like, like look, I can shoot beauty and I can shoot, you know, sensuality as well. Um, so I think really what it was is, and what I would say, even if I was speaking to my past self is, you know, aim for the, like the kind of work you do is what you'll get. So like, and in the beginning of my career, I just shot anything I could. And now I'm, yeah, I'm still not saying no to, you know, I'm not saying no to like lots and lots of things, but I do say no to a lot. And I do recommend that you say no to a lot because you can make a career shooting commercials and music videos, but there will be a point at which like, if you've shot 15 movies that no one's ever heard of, that's a, a marker. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, it's, yeah. and so you don't want to just shoot to shoot. Like 
I, you know, I've been very fortunate that in like the last, and, and I will say no one has ever asked to see one of my old movies. Like, <laughs> and I don't mean that as a negative. I mean that as like, I shot some movies that are not great and okay. like that were learning processes and maybe the script didn't work. Maybe the, the performances didn't work. And every movie is a gamble. You don't know the risk. You're taking a risk every movie you shoot that it's not going to be good. And that's okay. That's part of the job, right? Um, you might shoot a great movie that you that gets mishandled in the distribution. And that's honestly how I feel about, you know, like American Metal be retitling. I'm like, this is a really fantastic, gritty, independent crime thriller. And it's being sold as an action thriller with John Travolta, who's a side character in it, being front and centered. Yeah. People are not yeah. going to watch that movie and have the right expectation. And so it's going to... Hopefully people can still enjoy it and enjoy it in spite, you know, of the way that it was marketed by this company. But that's sort of the thing, right? But you're, that's why I'm like, there is no direct pipeline. I don't know what my next movie will be. Like, I'm fortunate that I got to do a movie right after Saw. Um, and, you know, through the course of my career, I started doing like Mandy and Craigslist jobs. Like, I didn't go to film school. <laughs> like, I've been, you know, so I've shot a lot of stuff that's just, you know, Christian rap videos, like whatever, right? Uh -huh. Stuff to keep making money and keep going. I do. I don't think you have to be excessively precious about your future career, but I do think there is like, you know, it's worth intentionality and thought. And I try not to do something unless it's giving me, if you got to make money, that's just at the end of the day, like it is what it is. Like, don't, don't feel ashamed of that. You know what I mean? I do think there's a lot of other ways to make money that aren't making movies. And usually movies are not the best way to make money. Yeah. Um, but then there's, you know, does it f feed you creatively or get you a piece that is like, even if it's like, ideally you walk away and you're like, I can get a trailer out of this that a director would want to watch and then want to make a movie with me. Right. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. a minimum hope yeah. for a movie. And if, if it doesn't do that, then hopefully at least you are able to walk away and say, I can cut a sizzle reel off of this movie that allows me to show the kind of work I want to do. Cause the main thing I would say is make the kind of work you want to make and show that kind of work and keep, and it's been that process for 10 years, you know? And like in the beginning, I didn't know my voice. I didn't know the kind of work I wanted to do. So it was much more like a little comedy, a little this, a little this. Um, as I honed what I do well and what I like doing, you know, it's become much more like focused in yeah. and commercials and music videos are a different world than features. Sure. So I'm also like, understand those are different spaces and you can play in those spaces and what, you know, what they want in commercials is not always what they want in features. And like, it's okay to have those as separate spaces. Yes, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that gives it, that's kind of my random, you know, just keep doing it. And, and like, you know, cause I'm like, I don't know. It was luck like in yeah. a way, but also <laughs> I wouldn't have gotten the job if like they didn't look at me and like, there's a reason I didn't have to talk to the studio or the producers. Yep. There was enough things in my reel and on my website for them to look at and say, we don't clearly this guy knows what he's doing. We trust you know him. what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the thing. A DP is like the get out of jail free card. It's the, like, even if our movie is jack, like horrible, it's going to look like a real movie that can be sold with, re, you know, images yeah. that look cinematic. So, you know, and that's like this movie I did with Travolta and, you know, Dorf technically we shot it in 11 days. Production budget was half a million. The rest of it went to actors, Unreal. you know, and yeah. then, that's like, but do I regret doing it? Not whatsoever. I made a really, like, a, you know, a really entertaining movie with a good friend of mine that was his first feature with names that are awesome. known around the world. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, 
that those faces get me something doing a movie that's entertaining and a genre I like gets me something. Um, even though like it was mixed critically and, you know, people did not love my handheld work in it in terms Uh-oh. of, which I don't care. Like I've seen it and I'm like, it's rough. Like, do you don't like narc, you know, you don't like narc, well, you might not like this. Like it doesn't, it's not made for everybody, you know? Yeah. Um, but it does sting. Like it's hard not to let the critics sting. Oh, for sure. You know. Well, Nick, I we I've taken way too much of your time, uh, but I, I can't tell you how much I appreciated this conversation, uh, and I think a lot of the listeners are going to appreciate it too. So, thank you so much, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and feel free to um, feel free to ask questions on Instagram or hit me up by email. I'm, yeah, uh, what is what is your Instagram for for those listening? Yeah, I'm a, I'm at Nick Matthews Film, and um, I used to use it as an educational platform for a while. I kind of lost interest, but. I'm thinking about uh, trying to do a little more of that again because I remember being 20 and I, I started, I moved to LA when I was 25 mm-hmm. and I remember being 20 and not knowing anything about cinematography and being like, I really want to do this, but I just don't know where to start. Totally. And there's so many great references, you know, resources available now that weren't even available then online and books and, and to watch. But I do think like we have the opportunity as people that, you know, yourself and myself that do this for a living uh, to be able to share about where we are in the process in a way that can inspire other people really to find their voice and to, you know, express it in the world. Cause that, I mean, I love seeing other people like come, to, come to life and light up, you know, and, and find new ways of doing things. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you again, man. I appreciate it. You bet. All right. Thank you guys so much for sticking around. It was a longer episode, but we made it and we're better for it. I feel like, uh, thank you again, Nick, for coming on to the podcast this week. Um, lots of great episodes coming up. I'm, I'm, I know I've been slacking a little bit. Gosh, you guys have so much patience with me and you're the best, but here's, here's my goal. I'm going to do two episodes a week. So if I end up with one episode, I, I still won't consider that a failure, but, uh, two episodes a week. Um, for the foreseeable future I get a lot out of the podcast um, so every time I do an episode I learn something and I'm hoping that you guys every time you listen to an episode you're getting something out of it as well um, I'm going to need recommendations though if I'm going to be to- doing two episodes a week so um, who-, who inspires you the most uh, in your social network if, you- if you've got someone in mind just send me a message on Instagram jlarsl or creative income podcast uh, Instagram if you've got my phone number in your phone give me uh, shoot me a text or give me a call um, I'd love to hear from you guys. And, and if you uh, could, it's a new year, it's a new me, it's a new you, um, share the podcast with someone, uh, either verbally or on social media, whatever that stuff goes a long way. Uh, all right, guys, we'll see you next week. Bye.